Well, it is so good to be with all of you again. In this episode 130 of Interior Integration for Catholics, I am so glad, I'm so excited to have Dr. Jerry Crete back with us. Dr. Jerry Crete, licensed marriage and family therapist. Dr. Jerry Crete, adjunct faculty at different universities. Dr. Jerry Crete, former president of the Catholic Psychotherapy Association. Dr. Jerry Crete, co-founder of Souls and Hearts. But there is a new wrinkle, ladies and gentlemen. There is a new wrinkle. We have Dr. Jerry Crete, author, author with us today. And I'm so excited because in this episode of Interior Integration for Catholics, we are going to be discussing his book, Litanies of the Heart, Relieving Post-Traumatic Stress and Calming Anxiety Through Healing of Our Parts. It comes out January 16th. If you are listening to this on the first day that this podcast is released, it's coming out tomorrow. Tomorrow. Big day. We've been waiting for this. I've been waiting for this for months. So excited. Sophia Press is putting this out January 16th. And I just, I don't know, my heart's just really big right now. Dr. Jerry, so good to have you with us. Well, so great to be with you. Thank you for that entry or that uh, nice <laughs> affirmations. I appreciate it. You have been working on this for what seems to me to be a long time, and I am so excited. I, I was privileged to be able to look at an early copy of the book, and I was really honored when you asked me to write the foreword, and, and I dived into this book, and I, I have lots of opinions about this book, really super excited about how much of a difference this book is going to make, because... It is really the first book out there that takes internal family systems, that looks at parts, the innermost self, systems, attachment theory taken inside, systems theory, and brings it all together and grounds it specifically in a Catholic understanding of the human person. And we have been in such need of this book for so long. So I'm so proud of you and so proud of the work you've put into this. Honored to be with you here today. Thank you so much. I'm excited too. I love that endorsement and uh, <laughs> you nailed it. I mean, that is what I was trying to accomplish. So I'm so excited. In fact, I was, you know, looking at it again just earlier before this interview, just sort of the glance over, you know, think about, you know, what might, what I might highlight. And it really struck me how the faith is integrated in this mm -hmm. whole process. I don't think I, I think I really provide a lot of theoretic theory, the psychological theory, whether it's attachment theory, parts work, even bringing in aspects of EMDR, various things. So there's tons of psychological theory, but but is it ever grounded in in a biblical and a Catholic or a Christian whole approach to understanding the person, our, our our relationship to sin, our relationship to God, our inmost self, how our interior world reflects the kingdom of God ultimately. Beautiful, beautiful. And and I just have to share with all you listeners what I just think is a really telling little factoid about this book. The way I understand it, because I'm not a published author myself, when you write the book, the publisher wants you to go out and get endorsements to help get endorsements for the book. These are the little blurbs that go on the cover or on the, you know, inside by the fly leaf and all of that. And so Dr. Jerry, you put out the word to a few people to get some endorsements. 
And your publisher was so surprised at how many endorsements came back in and how amazing those endorsements were. There were so many endorsements, they couldn't fit them all in the book, in the space that they had for endorsements in the book. Am I right on this? Is that my understanding this right? <laughs> you're right. You're right. It's an amazing affirmation for me, honestly, because I remember at one point I asked, you know, my publicist, I said, how many endorsements can I have? Is there too many? And, mm -hmm. and she said, oh, there's never too many. Get as much as you can. And so I did. And uh, I reached out to a number of people and I just kind of assumed a certain percentage are just not going to have the time. They're not going to, even if they say yes, they may not get to it in time or whatever. So I assumed I, I, you know, was hoping I'd have, you know, three or four, <laughs> but I ended up having over 20 and beautiful endorsements. And honestly, you know, my personality, I'm probably, you know, going to overly critique or look down on my own work and, and just be like ready to be punched in the face, kind of be ready to be like put down, put in my place or something. <laughs> and instead they were just so powerful and I was so so moved by what people had to say because they what they were saying was exactly what i was trying to accomplish yes so it was a beautiful and powerful affirmation for me personally and for this work that i that i put out so so yeah i, I was blown away check out those endorsements they are on the sophia press website sophiainstitute.com it's featuring that the press is featuring jerry's book right now all of those endorsements are there, including the ones that actually couldn't fit in the book. I remember when you came to me and just and you asked, would it be okay if your endorsement wasn't included in the book? You know, and I'm like, <laughs> that's fine. You've got so many endorsements. And and I I just have to share with 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 our listeners, Dr. Jerry, a couple of these endorsements because they're just so powerful. So the first one here I want to share, Dr. Bob Schutz. Many of you know. Dr. Bob Schutz. I, I admire his work with the John Paul II Healing Center down in Florida. He's the author of Be Healed, Be Transformed, Be Devoted, and Be Restored. He's been doing a lot of work. He's one of the key figures in human formation in the Catholic world and has been for, for a long time. And this is what Dr. Bob Schutz had to say about your book. He said, Litanies of the Heart is an incredible integration of cutting-edge psychotherapeutic approaches with Orthodox Catholic theology and practice. I especially enjoyed reading about the different conditions of our wounded and frightened hearts brought into the light of God's merciful love and following that by praying the litanies of the wounded, closed, and fearful hearts. This book will lead you on a lifelong journey of recollection or recollection, gathering all the divided, sinful, and traumatized parts of your heart into wholeness and communion with God. I highly recommend it for everyone who desires to embark on this journey of healing and for those who assist in this journey. Now, what strikes you out of that, Dr. Jerry? <laughs> <laughs> well, so much, you know, he's acknowledging the different therapeutic approaches that went into it. And, and mm -hmm. the ones that I personally have been moved by, IFS, ego state therapy, EMDR, attachment theory, that I really do think by and large are experiential. It's not all just mm -hmm. a cognitive process, but it's actually including the whole person. So he acknowledged that. That was wonderful. He also said in there that it will help the person. So the regular person that's reading this book, I believe, will be helped mm -hmm. by this book. But also for helpers, which could be coaches, mm -hmm. spiritual directors, counselors, therapists, psychologists, like anybody that's working with others, uh, priests, pastors, you know, pastoral associates, all this. 
I, I think will will benefit as well. Mm-hmm. There's so much in there, and to have a recommendation like that from somebody who is so established in this field as Bob Schutz, mm-hmm. I think it's just a tremendous. It's very honor. Clear he yeah. clear he read the book. You know, like he really dived into it. So. Matt Frad. Okay, we've got to mention Matt Frad, right? Matt Frad, creator and host of Pints with Aquinas podcast, the author of multiple books. Here's what Matt Frad had to say in his pithy, short way. I love it. He said, Litanies of the Heart provides innovative approaches linking Christian meditation and psychology that will help the broken find comfort, consolation, and healing for their wounds. Now, I know you and Matt go way back. So I'm just, any, any word in that, statement from Matt about the book that just strikes you. Yeah, I mean I think that he's acknowledging the woundedness, right? That it's an innovative approach and he mentions meditation. You know, there's a section in every chapter that includes a prayer/meditation that is designed to help a person in their healing journey. So the fact that he recognized that was, you know, very moving to me and that this is for any, you know, the wounded, but who among us are not wounded. So, <laughs> you know, Matt is a good friend of mine. I've been on his show like a number of times and, uh, and I appreciate it. And even on his show a year and a half ago or whenever it was, we read together the, the litany of the, I think we chose the wounded heart. And mm-hmm. he prayed it with me, which I was just so happy that he wanted to do that. And he knows, you know, he's lived it, not just read it, but we actually did it together. So uh, that, meant a lot to me mm-hmm. yeah i i clearly don't know him personally don't know him well apart from some of the episodes of pints with aquinas but this is a man that is actually pretty open about his some of his own struggles you know like like really is recognizes in a in an immediate and earthy way the messiness the difficulties of human life yeah yeah he's not afraid to be real and i think that's about what he's struggling with and what he has in the past and various things. I think that people relate to that. So I'm so glad that he liked the litanies as well. This third one is somebody that is really near and dear to my heart. A a beautiful man, a beautiful priest. You probably know I'm talking about Father Boniface Hicks, you know, somebody that has been a huge supporter of souls and hearts, a huge supporter of the resilient Catholics community. He came to our retreat last august and was our retreat master for the rcc retreat just so wonderful to meet him he's a monk of the saint vincent art arch abbey in pennsylvania he's the director of spiritual formation and director of the institute for ministry formation at saint vincent seminary he's also the co-author of spiritual direction a guide for sharing the father's love and he is somebody that I have so much respect for. His book on personal prayer, A Guide for Receiving the Father's Love, just so rich. And so I'm just going to invite you to listen as I read what he had to say about the Litanies of the Heart, the book. He says, in the Litanies of the Heart, Dr. Jerry Crete offers us a treasure trove of wisdom and pathways of healing. He provides several books in one, an expert teaching on psychology, a deep reflection on scripture through the lenses of psychology and Catholic theology, and a compassionate way of discovery, understanding, and healing for our hearts. I was repeatedly moved to tears when I read the poignant stories of suffering that also shone a light on my own heart. 
I was moved to hope for deeper healing and integration, and I kept thinking of various people with whom I am excited to share this book. It is not a quick read. It is an in-depth exploration, a real journey into our hearts. Dr. Crete is an expert guide for this journey. He has a rich integration of Catholic faith and complex psychological models gained through prayer study, extensive personal experience, and extensive therapeutic experience. He generously shares that lifelong integration with us in this masterpiece. <laughs> wow. Like, wow. Yeah. So that brings <laughs> up so much for me, but I want to hear from you first. Like what kernel or what word or what passage in that, in that endorsement just moves you? Like what, what really moves you? In the yeah. Well, so much. I don't know where to begin. I mean, that really was probably my favorite of the endorsements. <laughs> I mean, okay, let me just start by saying Father Boniface called my book a masterpiece. So I can just <laughs> run with that for a while. <laughs> that I can't, I just feel like what a compliment. But aside from that, I think what really moved me was that he was moved to tears that there's vignettes there's these little every chapter begins with a little story a little snippet of someone's life you know those come from some of my own personal experience they also but mostly come from clinical experiences i mean they're all composite stories so it's no one person but did write those as narratives and to really speak to the human experience of trauma and suffering and the fact that father boniface was moved to tears and was moved you know, to look at his own heart in reading those vignettes, like that means a lot to me. I'm so grateful and that he expressed that because that's what I'm hoping that all the readers will experience. Mm -hmm. Those vignettes, I don't think it's actually, maybe it maybe I have a little bone to pick with you here. I don't think the word vignette captures what those narratives are. Mm -hmm. Because most of the time when you think about a vignette in clinical writing, it's a short little paragraph, you know, it sort of outlines sort of the broad strokes of a, of a case conceptualization or something or, or a history, but your stories and these stories are interlinked. You follow these different characters. Alexander, I remember so clearly how he goes through and links together the different chapters. And I found myself just really engrossed in his story and resonating with, with things that happened in my own life. So this isn't some dry conceptual text you know, that's just full of abstract ideas with uh, a little meditation afterwards. Father Boniface talks about how this is multiple books in one, mm -hmm. right? But woven together like strands of a rope so that it each one strengthens the other. It's just, it's just really remarkable. There's not really another book out there like it that I think does such a great job of integrating these different ways of writing almost like different genres of writing within one book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had fun with that because for me, it was narrative writing. And I used to do a lot more of that in days past. And so I had fun just writing it like you would write a little, like a, a novel or a short story. But at the same time, I personally don't like reading a book with really long case studies. I, <laughs> I want to get, my intellection, my intellectual parts want to get to the meat and I want to understand I want to know the stuff. I don't just want to hear the story. But at the same time, I know a lot of people do love those case studies. So I didn't want it to be long. 
but I wanted it to just be long enough to capture someone's heart and to give them a glimpse of the deeper level that, that you can't always express in that intellectual part. So the, the parts that just talk about the psychology of it, or even the scripture study, like you're not going to get at the heart of a person's experience the same way as you do in a little narrative. So maybe a little, would you say little narrative is a better name for it? Or I, I would say, yeah. I mean, I like, I like the word narrative, but even more, I like the word story. story. Like yeah. you're hearing the story of Alexander mm-hmm. and of some of these other, these other characters, these composites fictional like capture the essence of our common struggles you know that come that are carried by our exiled parts that are defended against by our our manager parts and our and our firefighter parts and you're bringing that to life in a way that is so gentle and allows our parts to be able to engage or not engage like that's something about the book that was so relational like Books often for me don't feel very relational. I sort of feel like they exist in this sort of static way and I can I can pick it up or not. But this book, there's a way that it allows you know one's parts to move closer or to have the space. It's it's almost like a relational experience in reading the book, which is really different in terms of a reading experience than most texts that would I think be classified in this way of of understanding ifs or parts work or 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 other things i love it that you said that what i was going for was that relational i was trying to make a connection with the reader and Mm -hmm. take them in a journey really Mm -hmm. yeah and all of the reader not just the the bits of the reader the the parts of the reader that like to read books (laughs) but there's an invitation to parts that might not immediately be engaged in the book right and those parts may come out in the scripture studies those parts may come out in the, the the meditations. Those parts might come out more in the experiential exercises or the questions for reflection. There's so many different ways mm. that a person can engage with the richness of, of, of what's in the book. You know, what's funny is Jennifer Madere, who's a uh, brilliant therapist, she's an EMDR consultant and trainer in Texas, and she was one of the endorsers as well. And she had said to me that she really loved the appendices. And that she could see my inner, the parts of me, the inner researcher and that inner, you know, kind of collector of data and wanting to organize that had fun with that, with the appendices and that she <laughs> loved them too. And that it actually like, you know, so there's that, you know what I mean? Like there's a, there's a little bit of everything for all of your parts, I think in this book, even in the appendices. So. <laughs> well, we will talk a little bit more about one thing that's in the in, a, in an appendix that I thought was m- most important page of the whole book. We'll talk about that in a little bit, but let's start high level. What do you want people to know about this book? What, what is so important that you, you hope that our listeners will really take in about litanies of the heart, relieving post-traumatic stress and calming anxiety through healing our parts. That book, what do you want us to know? Yeah, yeah. So it's hard for me to put into one sentence or two or, you know, to capture 100%. I think that at a very big level, an ultimate level, I'm hoping that this book will help people connect with God, unite with God in a, in a safe and deep personal way like never before by through a process of healing and through a process of discovering a secure attachment, if you will, a safety with God. 
And so many of us intellectually know lots of good things about God, but deep down we have parts that don't feel safe with God, don't feel safe with others, even don't feel safe in our own skins. And so what I'm hoping that this book will do is will help people discover that inner richness of their own inner world, of their own self-system, and be able to bring healing and bring almost inner harmony. And, and then eventually that will lead to connecting, loving others, and actually connecting to God in a, in a way they haven't experienced ever before. So on a top level, that's where I'm going for. <laughs> so what I'm hearing, the way I'm understanding, you, you tell me if this is accurate, but I'm imagining a person and and this is every man, right? Every woman that has these these parts inside that are lost sheep, the ones that are that are rejected, the the outcasts inside, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the the lepers, right? The the parts that are rejected by others, the parts that are rejected within our own systems that we reject, the parts of us reject. You're inviting those parts into relationship with self and ultimately into a relational, loving, personal intimacy with God in a way that doesn't freak everybody out inside. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that is a big focus. I, I hope as well, the parts that are more managerial in the person system will also be invited to that so that it's their, really it's their whole inner world is this discovery. And, and I think a big part of that is discovering the inmost self, right? The, 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 our innermost self, I think you, you often say, and it's right. that core, you know, the spiritual center of the soul. And because that is so often eclipsed, that is so often, you know, we, we don't have access to, whether that's because we have parts that are managing things for all of our system and discovering what it is like to actually connect with your inmost self. What is it like to live out of that place and operate and have an IFS would say self-leadership, you know, that we would say that we have self-energy, that we are, uh, you know, so I'm hoping that that, you know, all these, all these interesting and powerful techniques that are, you know, we, we see in, in parts work and IFS and grounding them in a way that, that is connected to our faith that fits, it actually fits so beautifully with our faith. And, and so I'm hoping that's what people will experience so that it would, there's an enrichment here of both your your psychology, your both your uh, your mind and your heart, but also your soul. Like uh, that, that there's yeah, a spiritual yeah. growth and and a human growth, a human formation as well as a spiritual growth. That both is what I'm going for in this book, and and in general, like I mean, the audience I kind of focused on was right people who've experienced post traumatic stress, people who've experienced anxieties, but but I also end up saying you know that's all of us. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm writing to those yeah. wounded parts that you mentioned. I'm writing to them, but I'm hoping, and I'm hoping it will speak to each and every one of us. Well, I, I'm so glad that we've been able to to kind of get that broad overview because, yeah, as Mark Foley Abbott, Mark Foley Carmelite, uh, Carmelite Abbott, he says we have one life. We don't have like multiple lives. We don't have a spiritual life and a sex life and an academic life and a work life. We have one life. And so when you're looking at this from an integrated way where you're bringing the natural realm and the spiritual realm together, and what's really striking about this book is that you're, we're not harmonizing the faith. 
with the best of human formation resources from, from, from the secular world. It's the other way around. We start with what we know to be true because of divine revelation, the authentic teachings of the church, the perennial teachings of the church. And then with that as a base, with that as the yardstick, we take and consider these other things. Yeah. You know, it's not a, everybody gets equal weight, right? So Catholics can read this book with so much confidence that there's not going to be anything in here that violates a sense of faith and morals. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I was doing a radio uh, show. I can't remember which one because I've been doing a bunch of them. And it's in Idaho <laughs> or Iowa or somewhere. And, and, and the guy, a great interviewer. And so he, he said to me, oh, so have, are you baptizing IFS or baptizing parts for mm -hmm. And I paused and I said, no. I'm not baptizing IFS, that's for sure. And I'm not baptizing even parts work. I am showing how parts work is intrinsic to the, to the human experience and is intrinsic to our faith. And anything that isn't, you know, anything that is out of line with that, that's in IFS or in ego state therapy or any of these things is just being discarded or scrutinized. Right. right. And to reveal that this is actually, although never really fully expressed in this way, but it is actually right. part of the very fabric of our faith. And it's in the, it's biblical and it's, I'm showing how it connects with St. Augustine's writing, St. Maximus the Confessor, St. Thomas Aquinas, all these different, you know, amazing spiritual, you know, doctors of the church and so on. And I'm showing how, no, it's all there. Right, right. It's all there. And it comes out in the book. Maximus the Confessor, you know, eighth century, I think. Seventh, seventh. Um, you know, seventh century. Okay. You know, you have like a grip on the history here about, you know, his his passage. I don't remember it all verbatim, but that the human the human being is a microcosm, right? He's talking about systems, systems theory and parts theory in the seventh century. This isn't some, you know, sort of Johnny come lately you know, kind of idea that that's gotten into the church, this, and then into the scriptures, you go through this over and over again, revealing the multiplicity of the human person in the scriptures. And so this is for folks that have this deep desire that whatever they take in and whatever they hold to in the natural realm, be conformable to what we know to be true. This is a book for you. And that's why it's People can approach this book. Catholics can approach this book with that confidence, you know? So, yeah. And I know that Sophia Press, you know, vetted this book heavily, you know, to make sure, because it was a little, you know, kind of some concerns about some of this IFS stuff. Isn't this new age? Isn't this, you know, sort of like a modernist thought here or something like that, you know? And when I read it, you know, I was like, yep, there's nothing here that might, that's giving my spidey sense very tingly. And my spidey sense about like, Heretical stuff is very tingly, you know, so it's like, <laughs> yeah, because I, at the end of the day, I don't want to lead anybody astray. You know, and you and I, as the co-founders of Souls and Hearts, the last thing we want is to lead anybody astray, mm -hmm. you know? So. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm right with you there. And, and, and yeah, it's been vetted by quite a few and it was nice to have Father Boniface review it as well early on and even after. And yeah, so I, I'm just, when I reread it, even myself, I, I'm always amazed at myself, if you will, um, <laughs> how much I included because, you know, of all these different saints, I decided to do a fair bit of footnotes on some of the more heavy theological, philosophical quotes 
because I want the reader to be able to skip them if they're just not interested in that. Like they don't need, right, but right. if you're interested in like some of the, the longer St. Maximus confessor quotes or the longer St. Thomas or whatever, they're, they're in the footnotes. So anybody that wants to can d- deep dive into that, but anybody that doesn't need to go there, Hey, it's, mm-hmm. it's much more readable. Right. So, right. so I, I try to just provide a little bit for everything. And, and again, in the appendices, I also look at the history of parts work going all the way back to like Plato. <laughs> right and aristotle and and, and and to the different fathers of the church so uh mm-hmm. you know i want to show that there's a it's a line that goes through time really it's just never been expressed in this way exactly before well dear listener there are two people in this world two people in this world that have made the deepest dive into the history of this from a catholic perspective and that is you, Dr. Jerry, and Dr. Christian Amalu, or almost Dr. Christian Amalu. He's still got to finish his, his clinical internship. His dissertation was also on this. I know that the two of you have consulted on this, and you're even presenting together at the Catholic Psychotherapy Association Conference coming up in, in April out in New Orleans. So yeah, the two of you are a powerhouse. I'm really interested in this stuff. Uh, you know, I've studied this stuff too, but you, you two are far and away much further ahead than me. So I am so excited to be able to learn from you on this. So Sounds great. I don't think you're giving yourself enough credit, but all right. <laughs> you know, actually, you know, I've been to your house. I've seen the bookcases, like the massive bookcases. And I know how well-read you are and how, like, what an inquiring mind you have about, you know, finding the, the threads that connect this all together. You know, I'm really pragmatic in the way that I work. I tend to be very pragmatic, very functional, very immediate. And you have this way of like, you know, being open to, to, to this entire history and have brought it together for us in this book. So there's two kind of questions here. I want to, I want to bring up about the why of this book. All right. And I, we've touched on it in a variety of ways, but I'm curious about why you wrote this particular book and why this book and this is especially important, the second question. We can even skip the first question. But why is this book so important in our world now? That's a big question. Well, you know, why I wrote this particular book was the first part of what you said. And I mean, there was a journey for me in writing this book. I think that I wanted initially to help people connect parts work with their faith. And I had this moment where, if it's okay for me to get into this story. Oh yeah, I wanna hear the origin story of the book because something I was gonna ask you in a little bit. Let's go to the origin story. Yeah, because I think it'll take us to where you're you're going with it. And it's funny because you might know, Mm -hmm. I love the transfiguration. And uh, I uh, named my- It's the name of your practice. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and I love it partly because in the moment of the transfiguration, you have Jesus revealing, you know, his divine nature to the apostles, or three of the apostles, and they had already met his human nature, and now he's showing all of himself. So there's a sense in which Christ is showing all of himself. But there's also a dimension in the transfiguration where he's also showing that God intends for us. You know, we're never going to be God in the sense of, we're never going to have God's essence, we're never going to be omnipotent or anything. But our humanity is is to be transformed. You know, in the East, they might say divinized or deified or something like that. But the point of that is 
because of Christ, what Christ has done, we're going to be greater than we are now in some way, closer to God. We're his adopted sons and daughters. So the transfiguration is just like this speaks to a dimension of who Christ is, but it also speaks to who we are being called to become. And I feel like you know, for counseling and helping people grow, like that's where we want to go. We want to grow into union with God. And we're, we're not just saved on some level, but we're actually transformed mm-hmm. in, in Christ. So, so I have that going on. And then, of course, I'm doing this work. I'm doing, you know, I had some training in IFS and, and this and that. I've been learning about it all this time. I started using it in my practice. And man, it was so powerful. So it was like transformed my practice. The, the key notes, like key moments in my own counseling clinical work that have been transformative, the very first one early on was I was trained in emotionally focused couples therapy, brought in a lot of attachment theory. I knew about attachment theory, but really brought it into like using it with people. And then, and then after that was EMDR, you know, I became a certified EMDR therapist as well as a consultant. So like, that's like helping people process trauma at this deep level. And then it was parts work, IFS. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is so amazing. Like it works. It obviously works. Like I literally have people coming a week or two after a session going like, I'm already changed. Mm-hmm. You know, I've had mm-hmm. two years of Jungian therapy with one guy and <laughs> I had two weeks with you and, you know, I've made so much progress. So I knew it worked clinically, but I wanted to know, like, is it Catholic? Like, is it compatible with my Christian faith? Right. Right. It's not enough to be pragmatic about these things and to be utilitarian about it. We want to make sure that it conforms to what we believe as Catholics. Yeah. Like, what are these parts and right. how does it fit? And I have all these million questions, right? So I, I've been pondering that for a while, but I think where it's most important is there was a moment where I was sitting in my, I have a little chapel in my house and I have an icon addiction and I have a, <laughs> a, a transfiguration, a large transfiguration icon as the center of my little chapel. And I often just pray by gazing at this icon and, and I'm looking at this and I saw, you know, there's Christ right in the middle. And then on either side of him is Moses and Elijah. And then, of course, you have James and John and Peter, and they are like flailing at the bottom, right? Anyway, I'm looking at this, and it just like hit me like a little lightning bolt. This is a parts map. Oh. This is a parts map. Like seeing this icon, and of course, it has its own meaning as the historical event of the Transfiguration on Mount Tabor, but it also is a a map of, of ourselves, of each one of us. Like there is a sense in which, Christ obviously dwells, he dwells in each one of us as baptized Christians, but we are also like Christ in this image suddenly represented for me the inmost self. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then you've got your two parts, these unburdened parts of Moses and Elijah, because they're literally coming from heaven, representing on one side the law and on the other side the prophets. And so we have parts that are prophetic and we have parts that are about law and order and, you know, (laughs) discipline and stuff. And so they represented two major parts that, in this case, were unburdened. And then you have these apostles, Peter and James and John, and they're very different. Like Peter, as you know, like he's, <laughs> he's impetuous, he's, you know, he's impulsive. We have parts like that. We have parts like James, who's he's kind of uh, ambitious. like The Boanerges, sons of thunder coming down. Yeah. Yeah. And then John, of course, like at that point, he's still one of the sons of thunder, but he's also becomes is the beloved apostle right and so presented our our, our self-system and then i went oh my gosh is this true of all of these different images or icons there's the last supper and i thought about all 12 Mm -hmm. apostles and jesus in the center again 
the inmost self and these parts. Then I was hitting me, what about the luminous mysteries? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I was imagining like, you know, Jesus being baptized and what that tells us about our inmost self. And then I was thinking about the, you know, the wedding, Cana and, and, and so on. I was just thinking all the mysteries of the rosary, honestly, but I was focused a little bit at first on the luminous mysteries because the transfiguration is one of them. Mm-hmm. I, it occurred to me, wow, our scriptures tell us about our inner world and about the multiplicity within our inner world. And our iconography and our church art tells us about that in one way. So I initially started to write something. I wanted to have the chapters all be a different luminous mystery. So that my initial beginning was that. I later used some of that work I did for a series and our articles and Souls and Hearts. Right. But that was the, the beginning of it. And as I kept going with it, though, I ended up having more and more of these questions about, okay, what is the inmost self? How does it relate to the soul? How does it relate to the self? What about the heart? And what does it say in the Old Testament about the heart? What does it say in the New Testament? What are the church fathers saying? How do we change it? I was realizing, oh, these terms are being used in different ways and different times. How do we make sense of it? You know, so I, I got deeper questions and more and more questions. And the book basically became this giant hodgepodge of all these insights and things <laughs> that I was learning about parts and related to the faith. And it was a bit of a monstrosity. And my wife looked at it and she's like, okay, you have lots of ideas, Jerry, but it's all over the place. <laughs> but I forget when you read a version of it, it was also a giant Frankenstein monster. Of things. <laughs> and, and so I, I finally mm. sat down and said, okay, I need to reorg this thing. And I organized it around the IFS model to some extent. I organized it around having, I figured 12 chapters, but having like, it needed a little story to capture. It needed the psychology. It needed the, the scripture. And it needed to have some idea of like something practical, something right. experiential. So it wasn't just a head thing, but people could actually do something with it that they would feel it and experience it so i had those four components so i basically took the monstrosity stuff and i organized it all into these categories you know and then there's a whole process of making that pretty and nice and flow well but once i had that organization it just took a life of its own it just started to all fit Mm -hmm. and come together and then i had the brilliant idea i'd already written the litanies of the heart prayers right right the initial title of the book was going to be my initial thought was the self and communion I love that title, but I thought of the litanies of hearts prayers, which were based on attachment theory. And I said, those three need to be in here. Right. They need to be in the meditation sections because it just fits. It fits with going from brokenness and, and all that to secure relationship with, with God, Christ. And so I put, and they just fit nicely mm-hmm. in the meditation sections, each one fitting a different, different spot. And then it just occurred to me, this whole book needs to be named the litanies of the heart because that's what it's all about. It's it about really us, is. our yeah. hearts calling out to God, reaching out to God, like this David does in the Psalms, like just pouring your heart out to God in wherever you are and, and receiving his love. And so, I mean, that, that ends up what the whole book is about. Yeah, yeah. And I remember when, you know, you and I were discussing the original prayer. So now we have to go back about three years, is it? It's about three years since the Litanies of the Heart were published. And I remember how we collaborated on that. I tried to write them. Well, you had the idea of the litanies. You said, oh, we should write litanies. And for some reason, it was litanies of all things, like you just said. And it was weird because I was like, I love that. I wrote a litany not that long ago. I wrote a litany to the Holy Family. And I love poetry. And I have this whole aspect part of myself that is very poetic. 
that has not had much time of day <laughs> in the last 20 years, really, I'd honestly say. But, but you had that idea of the litanies, right? And then it became... Well, what happened was it came to me to, to write some prayers, litanies, that really spoke not just to the soul, but to the heart, that involved the whole person, all of our parts, right? In my classic style, my managers got going. We wrote like a six-page outline of what these litanies would look like and, and all that. And then I got oh, wow. down to trying to write the litanies, right? And I wrote like two lines and I'm totally blocked. Like I've set everything up. I've got the vision of all this. And then I'm like, I can't write these litanies. And then I'm like, Jerry, can we talk about this? I, I had this idea about the litanies and you were like, it was just like a duck met water, right? And you just ran with it. And, and, and it really is. I, I have to say, this is amazing as far as like how the Holy Spirit worked because yeah, and we can say that you wrote the litanies, but I really believe that the Holy Spirit wrote those litanies through you. Like that's how it feels to me. And the response to those litanies we, we started with a printing of 30,000 of these litanies, you know, 10,000 of each kind. We're, we blew through those. We're now in our second printing of them. I, I'm not even primarily involved with that, but I hear stories about like how the litanies have changed people's lives. These are the prayers, the original prayers. And then, yeah, the book kind of in some ways connected back mm -hmm. to those prayers, right? Like you, you were able to bring that back as an organizing principle, sort of mm -hmm. halfway through the writing process, which was just amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you. I think that to say the Holy Spirit wrote them is a great honor to me because it means I was a vehicle for that. So I'm, I'm totally okay with that. I want that, that to be true. I, I believe it's true as well. But I also think the final form of the book, I believe, was the Holy Spirit guiding me through that. I mean, I just believe it you know, the litanies themselves, but the, the rest of it, the way it came together, because I, I'm looking at my own stuff and I'm going, oh, I like the way I said that. I don't remember saying that. Like, there's a lot of times I'm like, oh, wow, I like, you know, what I'm reading here because I feel like I maybe I was just so absorbed and I, I believe hopefully inspired, but it just came together better than I thought I could. Well, let, let me preface what I'm about to say by saying, I hope this doesn't offend you. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm going to preface this by saying, I hope this doesn't offend you. I have so much respect for how talented you are. And I really do see you as brilliant in the work you do. And yet when I read this book and it, cause I wasn't involved with it until it was pretty far along. When I read this book, I thought to myself, Whoa, there is more going on here. Yes. Jerry is brilliant. Jerry is a, an excellent writer. He's a good thinker, but it blew me away, especially when we got towards the end. You know, and I was looking at it that last time because you honored me by asking me to write the foreword. So I, I want to read the whole thing and read every word. You know, I got to, I got to really understand this book. I was like, wow, wow. So that is a mark to me that this is something incredibly special, you know, that this is not just, you know, the product of your own imagination, your hard work, you know, your, your perseverance with it and, you know, you bringing together in the natural realm, you know, your talents and, and so forth. But more like this, this was a, a co-authored project, you know, so, yeah. Mm. Well, thank you. No, I'm not offended by that whatsoever. I'm honored by that. Yeah, I, I, I mm -hmm. hope people will read all the way mm -hmm. to the end. There's parts of me that love some of the gems toward <laughs> the end. That You know how some right, people, right. and myself included, sometimes I read half of a book and then I get busy. Not that I didn't like the book, but I just get busy with something else. And I'm really hoping people read all the way to the end because my favorite vignettes are toward the end. And some of the aspects, like even the spiritual confidant part, mm -hmm. there's the vignette for that and the whole, that whole, and you actually inspired that name because there are other names, spiritual guide, guide sounds sort of new age and all this, but 
Yeah, right. resources sounds clinical. And you use that, you have a whole podcast episode on spiritual confidence. And I love that. I don't know. I just love that term, confidant. I think it makes sense. So, but anyhow, I like those, some of those chapters to me are the most moving. And where there's a, there's one on Our Lady of Guadalupe, mm -hmm. and it's a, a vignette of a woman in childbirth, a childbirth trauma. And I can't tell you how many people that have read the book mm -hmm. so far that have said, I love that chapter. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like that story. Mm -hmm. I'll stop saying vignette. Mm -hmm. That story. Thank you for well, that. Well, let's get this back down to rubber meeting the road a little bit more. I want to kind of get into this question right. of what does success in quotes, I'm putting the success in quotes. If this book is a success, what does that mean to you? Like what would success of this book look like? Does it mean that you sell a million copies? Does it mean that, you know, what, 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 yeah. tell me what success is. Yeah. I mean, I think honestly, success for me would be that a few things. One would be so much of my clinical experience in various domains, especially parts work, but in various domains, I think comes through and I try to bring it together. So, you know, I mm -hmm. think a lot of my experience and clinical expertise is embedded in here. And so if somebody who comes with some a trauma history, or they they experience lots of anxiety in their lives. If they actually are able to to learn from it, and then experience a measure of healing mm -hmm. through this book, then my job I'll just that's success to me, you know. Because I can I can see clients. I can only see so many clients, right? And you know, and I know it's not the same reading a book as actually meeting with a therapist. But if if I can impart something that will bring healing to others. That's success to me. The second thing is if I can help people grasp and accept this parts work approach, this understanding of our inner multiplicity, our inner family, our inner interior world, and grow in a way that become more integrated, more harmonious inside, and therefore connect with others and God. In other words, love themselves properly and love, therefore love others and ultimately love God. Right better that's success so any of those things would be amazing because i think for a lot of people it could stay intellectual like you could read this about read about parts and you could go okay that sounds interesting and yeah that i see where he's making his case that this is very fits our christian faith mm -hmm. yeah okay but to me that alone would not be success it wouldn't be mm -hmm. success unless the person actually connected with their own parts and they actually did some of this unblending and they did ultimately perhaps even this unburdening or they even realized, Hey, I need help. Right. And I, I'm going to, this was very helpful, but I want to get more help now. Like, so any of those outcomes wow. would be success to me. So two questions here, what was most difficult about writing this book? Like what, what was the biggest challenge? What was most difficult about writing this book? And what was the most surprising or unexpected mm. thing in writing this book for you the most difficult and the most unexpected or surprising okay well i think what was difficult for me was a period of time in the fall of would it be 2021 <laughs> and i talked about the monstrosity so 
I poured in what I thought was my heart and soul and all these brilliant ideas. And I felt like I was getting all these gems from heaven or this inspiration from my experience. And it was a giant mess. And because I think what can happen is I can live in my own inner world. Like I can live in my own bubble or I don't know what it is. Clouds. It's not a bubble. It's like you're living in the clouds with ideas. <laughs> I play with ideas in my head. I could float around there all day. I remember you telling me things like that, that you would, that you just love holding out of these concepts. Yeah. And, <laughs> And I could be the only one that makes sense of any of it. And so if I put it all on paper, <laughs> I think it's brilliant. And everybody else is just confused. And I was like, so there was a point in time where I had to get real with that and go, Jerry, no, mm -hmm. you've got to connect it. to. You've got to get on the ground and you've got to make this so that a person, not just even a therapist or a spiritually minded kind of abstract thinker is going to appreciate it, but that average people are going mm -hmm. to be able to understand mm -hmm. what you're saying, read it, make sense of it, and use it. And so that was the biggest challenge. And that happened to me in the fall of 2021, where I really ultimately had to restructure it. I give credit to mm -hmm. my wife because she's the one who kind of had to break that to me. She tried to do some management of it and help me out with it. And I feel like she just <laughs> got overwhelmed by it. And she was busy with her own <laughs> things in her own life. And I was like, so I had a very discouraging moment. There was a point in time where I was very discouraged because I thought, oh, I'm never going to make this. This is all just a big pile of stuff I think is brilliant, but nobody else is going to understand. Like a cluttered attic almost, right? Like, or something like that. Yeah. Like just amazing yeah. finds in the cluttered attic, but it's not organized. It doesn't, it's not amenable to living there, you know, yet. I guess so. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And, and yet it's all beautiful stuff. Maybe it's dusty or whatever, but in the attic, <laughs> but it's beautiful stuff, but it's not in any way that would be useful. And then mm -hmm. transform it into like basically a giant museum where mm -hmm. you walk through it and you get to see piece by piece and appreciate it and maybe even make it useful. So that was the most difficult was getting there. And I think that was such a good learning experience for me. So if I write any other books or anything like this, I'm going to know how to go to that space faster. I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to get there quicker. Yeah, I'm going to organize my thoughts better, all this kind of thing. So that was the big learning for me and the big challenge for me. What was your other question? The, the, the surprising thing, something that surprised you or that was really unexpected, seemed to came from the blue or that, mm. they, that really sort of took you aback in the whole writing process of the book. Mm, it took me aback yeah. or that surprised yeah. me in the process. Something you found out about life, about yourself, about God, There's something like, oh. like surprised, kind of like, oh, like oh. a C.S. Lewis surprised by joy or you're surprised by something that seemed to come out of the blue for you. Okay. I mean, I don't know if this is what you mean, but I fell in love with St. Maximus the Confessor. Mm. You know, I liked him before to the extent that I knew him, mm -hmm. but and you mentioned him early on in this, in this interview. And I fell in love with him. And once I started reading his stuff and grasping it, it took, you know, that guy of that part of me that likes to live in the clouds, man, <laughs> he was like a rocket ship flying through the clouds because he, he just like, oh man, everything kind of cosmically, everything universally, like suddenly made sense. And this guy, like in the seventh century, like literally I was saying, if I was being confirmed tomorrow, my confirmation name would be Maximus becoming a monk you better name me brother Maximus. Like, like seriously this guy blew my mind and this notion that christ is the mediator between god and the universe mm -hmm. in this sort of greater sense and that the whole kingdom of god is almost emanating 
not just in the human persons, but in the whole created world. Sort of like, maybe I knew that, maybe I had heard that, but it, it sort of like hit me. And then I was, so I was picturing this sort of that macrocosm of Christ and the kingdom and the expansion of God and how he wants to transform and transfigure the world into, into image because he's so in love with the world and wants this unity with us. And then the brilliant thing Maximus does is he takes that and he says, that also happens within you. Within you, inside the yes. person. Yeah. That was the mind-blowing piece. So there is a kingdom within me. There is a temple within me. St. Augustine says there's a city of God. There's a city within me. Mm-hmm. Like this whole notion. Like I was using this image for a lot of my clients and when I was doing parts work, this image of your interior house. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and so, you know, Teresa of Avila and the ca- her interior castle kind of comes to mind there. But it's this idea of this deep, complex inner world mm-hmm. that mirrors this external world. So mm-hmm. my inner temple, my mm-hmm. parts are praising and worshiping God together. And my inmost self is like the priest leading this congregation toward God. And that that's happening in all these other people as we collectively come together in church on Sunday or every morning, but let's just say in Sunday, then we're all collectively bringing our inner kingdoms together, worshiping God in this outer way. It has this like cosmic interior and exterior significance that, mm-hmm. I don't know, just blew my mind. The whole thing just made, got me so excited. And so I only touch on that. There's a chapter on that in, in the book. Chapter nine, check that out. Chapter nine, <laughs> the inner kingdom. Yeah. That is one of my favorite chapters, by oh. the way. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, tell us a little bit more about it. And I think I've said a lot already about it, but we want to write, I'm almost thinking next books and stuff like that. I'm thinking I need to write, expand on that. There's so much more to say Yeah, on that inner kingdom. And how it connects to, and how it exists within other kingdoms. Like this whole idea from IFS of nested systems, mm. you know, that these systems do not exist in some sort of vacuum or in isolation, but they're in relationship with each other. So there's a system within each one of us. And then we're in these broader systems, like the church is the mystical body of Christ. We are all interconnected. The communion of saints, we're interconnected in these systems. And this is a way of sort of explaining that. But Maximus, and my experience of Maximus is primarily through some of the things you've offered to me and through sitting on Christian Amalu's dissertation committee, you know, looking at like some of the things that he brought in, like this guy is amazing. And, you know, I really see the two of you guys as sort of like the heirs of Maximus, like actually bringing his stuff into the modern era, where now we have so much from neuroscience, developmental psychology, clinical psychology, attachment theory, systems theory, interpersonal neurobiology. Like you guys are, are like bringing it all of this together in a way that is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. It's really powerful. Yeah, I agree. Like I, I could day all day on Maximus, <laughs> you know, but I think I tied it in that particular chapter, you know, with, with Teresa of Avila's, you know, cause I think her uh, interior castle is brilliant. I always right. have. So it, it was nice for me because I've always had this devotion to her and love her stuff and that it all fit, but it's this notion of the kingdom within. I remember struggling way back with the, okay, so the kingdom is here, but the kingdom is coming and the kingdom is. And so what is this kingdom and, and what is a kingdom? Like, I know what it is right. historically in some ways, but what, right. what could he right. be meaning by that? Right, and so right. to explore what that, what that is uh, inside, mm-hmm. inside of us, mm-hmm. 
it was mm-hmm. was just a fascinating journey for me. I think in that chapter, I do focus as well on like the exiles. So I do spend a bit of time looking at that and what, what does it mean for not just the kingdom, but the idea of an inner temple being restored. So really like each exile is like being restored, is coming to mm-hmm. confession, if you will, is being brought back into communion, this kind of thing. So there's just so many layers here. Oh my gosh. So I could say so much more. It has also made me want to, there was a time in my life I read the St. Augustine's Confessions when, quite a, when I was pretty young, and that was a very life-changing thing. And I got the city of God. And I, I mean, I'm talking, I was 17. Right. That's how weird, <laughs> weird I was as a kid. That I, I was reading the Confessions at 17, and then I, so I, I loved it so much, I got city of God, and I sat there going, oh my gosh, how could anybody read this? So like at 17, I couldn't make it through city of God. Mm-hmm. But now I am like, I still have it on my shelf. And I'm like, I've now I've been like looking at bits here and there, but I really do want to tackle it, to be honest, because he's, you know, again, St. Augustine is talking about on, on a very superficial level, the fall of the Roman Empire. Right. So he's, he's historically experienced that, but he's talking about what it is to be the city of God, meaning the kingdom of God, the church. So there's got that level of church, but he's also talking about what is the city of God inside of us. And we don't know, actually, it's an interesting mystery. We don't know how much of St. Augustine Maximus ever read, because Maximus was Greek-speaking. St. Augustine was not widely read in the East, but we do know Maximus spent a lot of time, like over, I don't know if he spent 20 years, but close to it, in Rome and in the West at one point. So he spent a lot of time in Rome, but it's not clear. He doesn't quote Augustine. Mm -hmm. So who knows? But there's a mirroring of these two brilliant writers. In right. that micro right. macrocosm with the city of God. Right. All right. So I cannot resist. Can I? Can I tease you a little bit, Doctor Jerry? Uh, sure. Let me tease you a little bit because all of our risk listeners know that publishing a book, that first one, is extraordinarily difficult. You know, you hear these stories of the starving writers, the fifty-eight rejections. You know, as they send their manuscript. From to publishing house after publishing house. And so, you know, I just, I just, we just need to, to sort of hear how difficult it was for you to find a publishing house, all of the, the struggle and the strife and all of the, the difficulties and the, the dozens of rejections you must have had before finally Sophia <laughs> recognized this diamond and took it in like it was like that right wasn't it dr jerry it was it was <laughs> you're funny you're funny well okay first of all a lot of time a writer gets a proposal to write something they're asked to write something or they suggest something and so there's an outline or something that the publisher agrees you know and then they go off and they maybe get in advance and then they go off and write uh, even to get to that point sometimes is very difficult. We're talking established writers here. These are people usually with a track record. Or this big name of some kind yeah, in yeah. some area okay. and the, yeah. you're, someone reaches out and says, there's never been a book on this. Okay. Can you please write it? So that can happen. But yeah, but yeah, normally it's an established writer. But, but in any case, I just decided I was going to write this book. I wasn't even going to think about publishing. I was just going to write this book because I thought it was important. I was just going to do it. Mm-hmm. And for no other reason and not look right. in the future. So I did that. So I actually had the manuscript done, pretty much done, before I was even thinking, okay, now what do I'll do? Right. Like, right. you know, will we self-publish? Because right. we talked about possibly right. doing that. And, and so basically went to, it was on the recommendation of Father Boniface and to meet with uh, leadership at, at Sophia. And so 
you know, I sent the manuscript to them <laughs> on a Friday, and on Monday they said, "Yeah." Well, this <laughs> that was what happened. <laughs> well, I remember when Father Boniface asked me. I have a little bit more backstory here. Father Boniface asked me, "Do you have a book?" You know, yeah, and I said no, but Jerry does, and he said, "Okay, I got to talk to Jerry." So yeah, it was like the publisher was looking for a book like the one that you had written. Like it just sort of came out of like so naturally, right? Just like, whoom, like, just like, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe how, how easy that looked from the outside. Not that you didn't have your struggles in writing it or not that you didn't have, you know, the trials and tribulations of writing the book, but the publishing side of this, I was like, whoa. So. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, by the time I got them the manuscript, yeah, he he was very amenable. So it didn't, no decision process. I mean, there was a conversation and then I went through some editing. And then once they agree, then there's this process where they're, they have their editors right, and right. there's this whole thing. But yeah, no, it was like literally talking to the, the leadership on a Friday and then being told basically on Monday, yeah, we want you to do this. We want this book. So I don't think that normally happens. And I didn't look at any other publishers. Father Boniface said they're great mm -hmm. and he loves them. And they're like, and they've, it's been true. Like they're, they have integrity mm -hmm. as a publishing house and that they're good with their writers and they, they don't make changes without your permission and this kind of thing. So they, he gave a great endorsement. So I didn't, I just trusted that. And I didn't, didn't even think about looking at another publisher. Wow. That's a great endorsement for Sophia Press, you know, that, mm -hmm. that it went so smoothly. And I remember you going through the final editing and proofing project process and all of that, and you just really appreciating the suggestions that they were offering you. Cause there was a little bit of reorganization of the book, even at the end with some appendices or something. I, I can't remember it all, but it was like, it actually really yeah. helped. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. No, everything they said was helpful from a structural, right. there were some structural changes, but even within, you know, just to say, okay, it would flow better if you move this over here, whatnot you know, and any other editing. And, and I found that the editors understood their faith very well. Mm -hmm. So I felt like anything they were asking me aligned well with the faith. It wasn't, mm -hmm. you know, they weren't asking me something to change anything that strange mm -hmm. or anything that I disagreed with. Mm -hmm. So it was a very good working relationship, I yeah. think. Yeah. And that's remarkable because when you move away from the single homogenous unified personality into the realm of parts and systems, man, you upend a lot of paradigms. Like, like there's a lot that we've built on this idea that there's a homogenous mono mind, you know, and bringing in this part stuff is, is, is really remarkable. Some Catholics could see it as controversial, you know, uh, could really wonder, right? Because you type in IFS on you know, on the internet or you go to YouTube or something, you can find a lot of spiritualized weird stuff, you know, like stuff that wouldn't be conformable to the Catholic faith. So there can be like these associations that this isn't something that really has its origins. But this publisher, Sophia, was like, no, we've got to get this out there, you know? And yeah, yeah. Well, and I address a lot of that. Right. A big focus of my criticism of IFS is an appendix on, I do a critique of, of the book, No Bad Pirates. And in particular, because I feel like that really shows where the incompatibility with the Catholic faith, like that book is, you know, obviously it's got some good things in it, but it, 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 there's some essential, very problematic theological, right? I guess yeah. you could say philosophical metaphysical, assertions. Metaphysical and anthropological yeah. issues in there. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. And so 
you know, that's what we have wanted to do in Souls and Hearts. That's what we came to see is that we want to be able to present the best of these resources. I'm reminded again of St. Augustine, his book, De Doctrina Christiana, book two, chapter 40, where he talks about despoiling the Egyptians. He talks about bringing the best of pagan understanding and learning and bringing that in and appropriating that and using it for Christian ends, you know? And yeah. I feel like you've really done that because the origin of IFS was really phenomenological. It was not in any way Christian in its, in its, in, in Richard Schwartz, who was at the time that he was invested in this, he was, when, that he was quote, discovering IFS, not Christian. He was raised Jewish, you know, was really not operating off of a lot of a priori assumptions, not informed by, you know, divine revelation. And so, you know, there's ways that we can, can really add to his, to his observations, which I think in a lot of ways are really brilliant, but are not necessarily yeah. tethered to a Catholic understanding of the human person. Yeah, I would say a few things. I would say one is that I try to show in the history of parts, I have an appendix on a history of parts work. And I try to show that parts work goes back. Mm -hmm. Like he didn't invent it in the 1980s. Right. You know, obviously you've got basic things like Freud and the id ego right. superego. So there's some aspect of multiplicity there. You've got Carl Jung's archetypes have some sense of multiplicity, but especially Robert Asagliaggio. I can't remember if I'm saying his name right. But in Psychosynthesis, he talks about parts. He talks about, he has like an I and a me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. distinguishes between an I and a me and then these different sub-personalities. And then you have all sorts of other aspects in between. And eventually you've got the walk-ins and ego state right. therapy in the 60s and 70s. Right. And to me, they really, really develop a model of parts work that's more applicable, but they still were pretty heavy in the both the hypnosis tradition and in the psychodynamic tradition. And they're very heady and difficult to read. <laughs> very hard. Even for the average therapist, their stuff is very dense. Mm -hmm. So much is there. Schwartz was brilliant because he made it user-friendly right. for one thing. And the way that he conceived some things were just quick and easy to get, like the, the managers and firefighters, like people understood right. those things, exiles. So he put language to it that was super helpful. The one thing I would say is that that I really like about Schwartz and the IFS model in terms of a Catholic approach right. is his concept of self. Other than the ways that he takes it, he takes it in ways I don't like. Right. Right. But the fact that we have a, a self that is, at least in some sense, connected to God, right? That it's, I would say it's in the image of God, that it becomes a mediator grace to the parts. I, that's how I would frame it. But that it is different from parts. Right. Whereas like right. in ego state therapy, they have this concept of parts, but they could accept the idea of a, of a self that was kind of different, but it's not necessary. Right, right. They would almost see all the parts together as self. Right. And I agree with you. That's one of the reasons I was so attracted to IFS at the beginning too, because I found myself having to use parts in, in working with trauma. Like they were just there. Parts were just there. You know, and I sort of came in through uh, Sandra Paulson's work. You're really familiar with her in EMDR and she built some things off of. She wrote an endorsement as well. Yeah. Oh, that's right. She did. Uh, yeah. That's who first turned me on to parts work. But I thought I really need to find some model here. I looked at a bunch of them, but what you're saying is so true. So many, there are so many parts models but they don't have something like an innermost self, an organizing principle here, you know, within the person. So like transactional analysis, developmental needs, meeting strategies, structural theory of dissociation, schema mode therapy, none of those parts-based approaches, ego state therapy, 
emphasize this that there is both a unity and a multiplicity you know kind of like in an orchestra there's a a oneness to the orchestra and a multiplicity to the orchestra yeah and that there's a conductor in that orchestra so yeah that was that was also the reason why i was so attracted to his work yeah and there's reasons for that too because i think that with ego state therapy the for example really was formed out of working with people with severe dissociation like did and so the very notion of there being a self mm-hmm. to a dissociated part is threatening. Right, right. I'm the only me. Right, right. Right, to a dissociated right. part. Right. And so you could see how, in my mind, I would adapt IFS to extreme cases of dissociation because I haven't found that it takes that into account all that much, but I'm sure there are people who disagree with that. But what is brilliant about it is the way that, man, people get it right away. And it's the self, the concept of self. And the unfortunate thing is, Schwartz goes off and makes the self a kind of a god <laughs> and doesn't distinguish between creator and creation. Right. And if he had right. if he had not done that, in my mind, it would feel a lot safer to me. Right, right. I'm going to talk about my favorite page in your entire book, which is page 57. All right. Page 57 has your drawing here. And I remember the original copy of this drawing, which was like, hand drawn but you drew it on a <laughs> piece of notebook paper and and here it is much more refined thank you dr mark glafke because i remember yes. when you dr mark glafke changed this into something that was more refined but you're you're doing some amazing anthropological work so here is an oval of the human person and then within that oval you have these two intersecting circles kind of like the mastercard symbol you know the soul and the body and that overlap where they overlap in that like little Venn diagram is the, the heart. And then within the heart, you have the inmost self and the parts and you begin to, to flesh this out in a way that I have never seen before. This is again, I think a huge step forward to understanding metaphysically what's going on within the system. And I think it's going to be such a great launching point. For, for continuing work. It's just really, I think, comforting to people to be able to say, okay, this is connecting to what we understand from the tradition of our Catholic Church. And we can talk about parts, for example, having accidental form, but not substantial form, you know, and so on and so forth. I don't want to get too into the weeds with this right now because people might begin to nod off, you know, if it gets more above. But I just, I, that is my favorite page right there. Page 57. Yeah, well, I'm glad. I'm grateful. Yeah, I love this. It, this took a lot of time in a way of research. And then in a moment of, I don't know what, hopefully inspiration, like it kind of came together for me. But what I, I'm straddling in a way two different philosophical traditions within the history of Christianity, really. And one is an Aristotelian, Thomistic kind of point of view. And another is a more mystical, monastic type. Mm-hmm approach to spirituality and so i want to respect both Mm -hmm. and so even in the like you know when you read about the eastern fathers and you you read about the the monks and the desert fathers and the monastics and all this and you have this sense this word noose Mm -hmm. n-o-u-s i knew you were going to bring up the noose the n-o-u-s i was just like the caduce yep well, and in Greek, I mean, it, it means intellect or mind originally, but it takes on, within Christianity, it takes on this notion of heart. And it gets translated in the Bible sometimes as heart. Is noose is trans, gets translated at certain places as heart. 
and not just mind because mind doesn't quite capture it. Mm -hmm. And so what I really wanted to do is explain how we are a body and soul together, that those, our body and soul are unified. And in my diagram of the oval, and I have those two circles of body and soul, like those could be overlapping. You just can't overlap them in a diagram on a page, on a two-dimensional page, but they could be overlapping because they're intrinsic. Right. But within the mind slash heart, I'll just say the heart, is includes the inmost self, so the very core, the central spiritual center of the person. You have sometimes it's called the true heart or what the cave of the heart or mirror of the soul, what have you, these different terms are used. But this inmost self, St. Paul calls it the inmost self, and then all the different parts of the person. And that makes up the heart slash mind to me. Mm-hmm. And and it is both in body and soul. And that's why like when we're doing this work and you're connecting with a part, you often connect through the body. Right. Like, where do right. you feel that in your body? Right. And often, I find with clinically, um, a person doesn't connect with their part until they notice it first in their body. Their body. So yeah. this isn't just an immaterial aspect of the soul. It is both soul and body. So I, I'm hoping that this captured, this diagram kind of captures that and helps people visualize what's going on in the interior world. Because when I have an interior visual map, mm-hmm. Like I'm working with people, I have a whole map already in my head. And it's almost been tested for years and years now because if it doesn't resonate with anybody, I'll have to change it. But it always sort of resonates. And so it works is basically what I'm saying. It's theoretically, hopefully it's appropriate, but it works is is why it's so good. And and I tried to show, you know, I mean you get it, it's tricky, right? You get into things like where's the will? <laughs> right. Yeah. Where's the intellect? Where's the will? How are the passions associated? The faculties, you know. And we're at the beginning and we take that work really seriously in Souls and Hearts. You've made a huge step forward with this in that chapter on the inner kingdom, especially with that diagram. I think it's going to be, it's going to be really amazing. So one, one last question for you, Dr. Jerry, where are you going from here? I mean, are are there resources that are going to go with this book? Are you going to do an audio version, a workbook, a sequel? Tell us where you think. And I know, I mean, you can take a breath. Mm. I mean, the book is coming out. You've, you've <laughs> Okay, I get it. But I'm, I'm always curious about what next. Yeah. Well, I, I don't feel the need to do a workbook because this, this book has a workbook in it. That's true. Basically, it has the meditations right. and the, the reflection questions. And you could do that in a group. Like you could, as a group, read the, the first two sections alone and then together do the meditation and answer the question. So it could be, or you could do that alone as like a workbook style. So I, a workbook, I don't feel like I need to do just yet. Uh, maybe one, it'll become clear that I need to do that. I do think we're, we're talking about having study groups, though, <laughs> of people where having some coaches in that that would lead them and where people would go as little groups and work through <laughs> the book. So that, that is going to happen. So stay tuned on more info on that. I've already, because I'm, my wife just laughs, like I've already started another book or two. <laughs> and I don't know which one will emerge the victor of these different projects <laughs> that I want to do. Because one of them, really, I want to look at, spend more time on Maximus and really understand the soul and the self and at a deeper, go deeper dive into what that is. So to me, this book is about like coming at it from our brokenness and toward moving to healing. What I'm thinking about for the next thing is Okay, if we have some measure of healing, like we're always going to be healing, of course, but if we've come to some measure of healing, how do we take it to the next level of spiritual growth and human formation growth? And so that's where I'm thinking of next is 
And so I've thought about things like calling it the kingdom within, or maybe I'll come back to the title self and communion because that really speaks to me as well. But in some way, do a whole exploration because so many brilliant writers, like spiritual writers, have written about the self, about the soul that, that I only touched on. Right, right. And I'd like to explore that more, but still bringing it into that sort of psychological and practical approach. All right. So it's not just you're learning about it, but you're actually, it's actually going to affect your life and you're going to grow as a result. All right. So it's time for some action items, my dear listeners. Buy the book. Buy that book. <laughs> Go to sophiainstitute.com. You can buy that book. If you're listening to this podcast episode on the day it's released, which is January 15th, 2024, you can pre order it. Pre order it. It'll be shipped out. Get that book. And then mark your calendars because I am super excited at this opportunity that you are offering all of our interior integration for Catholics listeners. We're going to do episode 132 of this podcast where all of you can join Dr. Jerry and me. We're going to have a very brief presentation on the book and then lots of time for questions and answers. You'll be able to have that book for a month. This is going to be. This episode 132 is going to be recorded live on Tuesday, February 13th from 7 o'clock p.m. to 8.30 p.m. Eastern time, right? So the book comes out January 16th. You'll have four weeks to be able to dive into it, right? And then come and ask Dr. Jerry. We're going to, we really want to hear from you about how this strikes you, right? You can ask questions, have your parts voices be heard. You can ask out loud. You can ask in the Zoom chat. You can email me questions if you can't be there. I will collect those questions. We will get you in touch with Dr. Jerry, the, the questions you have. The release of this book, it really does mark a great moment in Catholic human formation, parts and systems, multiplicity, systems theory taken into, inside, attachment theory, the best of the secular human formation resources adapted and conformed to an, an authentic Catholic understanding of the human person. So. We're going to record that live Tuesday, February 13th, 7 o'clock p.m. to 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Register for that Zoom meeting. You have to register ahead of time. It's free to join it, but you have to register beforehand. Go to our Interior Integration for Catholics landing page at soulsandhearts.com slash IIC. Or you can also check it out on our Litanies of the Heart landing page at soulsandhearts.com slash lit, L-I-T. We'll also be announcing that meeting in our weekly email reflections that come out every Wednesday afternoon, so you can pick it up there as well. A couple of other events to invite you to as well to save the date. Friday, March 15th, from 8 o'clock p.m. to 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time, join me for episode 134 of this podcast. That's going to be a question and answer with an experiential exercise and an opportunity to, to debrief about the six major attachment needs. These needs are so critical. We started discussing them in episode 62 of this podcast titled Unmet Attachment Needs and Unmet Integrity Needs. We're going to be making a much deeper dive in episodes 133 and 134 of this podcast on those six major attachment needs. And then finally, Thursday, April 11th, from 8 o'clock p.m. to 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time, join me for episode 134 of this podcast. This will be a live Q&A. Again, with an experiential exercise, it's all about the six major integrity needs. 
So we're going to cover the attachment needs in episodes 133 and 134, the integrity needs in episodes 135 and 136, right? So Thursday, April 11th, episode 136, 8 o'clock p.m. to 9.30 p.m. Eastern time. A quick update on the Resilient Catholics community. We have closed our last cohort. We had 106 who applied in the St. Francis Xavier cohort. That is really exciting. So excited to have you new RCC applicants coming on board. You can sign up now still for the interest list for the St. Gertrude the Great cohort. That one will open up for applications on June 1st, 2024. But here's the thing. Sometimes we need a few more people to fill up our current cohort. So if you are interested in jumping on board the current cohort, you may be able to do that because sometimes we need to fill up different companies and so forth. So we go to the interest list first. Go to soulsandhearts.com slash RCC to sign up on that interest list if you'd like. And with that, one final thank you, Dr. Jerry. Anything else that you would like to add before we invoke our patroness and our patron? Any final things you'd like to share? No, just thank you very much, Dr. Peter, for having me here. I love your enthusiasm and I really hope, you know, I'm really just hoping that people will, will really enjoy this book. I hope it will bring, you know, if you're already into parts, I hope you'll love the integration and I hope it'll be a gift to your mind. But I hope especially that it will be an opportunity for healing and growth in, in, in your heart as well and uh, in your whole person. And, and again, and if anybody comes to the q and I look forward to hearing your thoughts and questions and, and to kind of journey on this thing together. Thank you. Beautiful. And please remember to keep Dr. Jerry in your prayers, to keep the book in your prayers, that it comes into the hands of those people whom God has selected to be able to take it in. Like that all happened. Please, everything's fueled by prayer. And even though this book is not a formal Souls and Hearts project, you know, this is something you did uh, independently from Souls and Hearts, Dr. Jerry. We are so like excited about it, you know, uh, at an organizational level because it's exactly what we need to be able to help people learn. So, super excited about that. And so, do come and join us February 13th, 7 o'clock p.m. to 8:30 p.m. Go to soulsandhearts.com slash IIC, click on that registration link. We can take a hundred people in that meeting. Please register if you believe you can make it. And we are super excited. I am super excited. And there is just one more thing I'd like to let you know about. An opportunity for all Catholic therapists and also all Catholic spiritual directors and all Catholic coaches. Would you like to work on your own human formation with other professionals in your discipline together in small groups? Souls and Hearts is now expanding our foundational experiential groups to offer them to coaches and spiritual directors and those in training too. In addition to therapists, we've been doing them with therapists for three years. We're now opening those up to spiritual directors and to coaches. In these foundations experiential groups, these FEGs, we use internal family systems approaches to help you get in touch with your own parts so that you can understand yourself more deeply and care more effectively for your own parts. These groups meet twice per month for five months on Zoom, and we will be starting in March 2024, wrapping it up in July 2024. We will also be encouraging you, helping you to work with your other FEG members outside of those groups to practice some internal family systems techniques to help you get in touch 
like I said, at a deep level. In these groups, we go through the book Internal Family Systems Therapy, second edition by Richard Swartz and Martha Sweezy. We have lectures about that. We have Catholic takes on that that's better recorded. If you're interested in finding out more, go to our homepage, soulsandhearts.com, soulsandhearts.com, download the PDF flyer. And if you're interested, fill out our contact form and we will be in touch. And with that, we are going to bring this episode 130 to a close. Thank you for being with us. We will invoke our patroness and our patron, Our Lady, Our Mother, Untire of Knots. Pray for us. St. John the Baptist. Pray for us. 